Romans chapter 1, here we go. Verse number 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at any length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I would not uh, have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Father, would you open your word? Would you help us and give us, dear God, what we have need of? I pray that somehow um, with all the different lives and the different hearts and the different things we all are facing, will face, have faced, that you might take your word and apply it. I thank you for every person, every family that's here. Thank you for their faithfulness, Lord, to come out in this inclement weather. And I thank you, Lord, for the folks that are at home, uh, some even sick and some not wanting to get out on the roads and, and we thank you for live stream. We thank you for the equipment you've given us, for the camera you've provided. We thank you, Lord, for, for the possibility to reach into a home uh, that right now can't reach out to us. And so I pray that you would bless them as well as those that are here uh, in person. Uh, speak to all of our hearts and do thy work as only you can. In Jesus' holy name, I pray these things. Amen. A very popular byword during the time of the Apostle Paul was this, all roads, all roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. Because from Rome, great highways like giant arteries um, reached out uh, throughout the world. Literally, roads around the world were, were highways leading back to Rome because Rome was the center of so much in the world during that time. And uh, it, was the, it was the political seat. It was ground zero 
for most everything that went on around the world. Now here's the deal. If all roads led to Rome, then that naturally taught us that all roads lead from Rome. And so Paul knew that if he could get to Rome, and he stated so many times in, in his writings and, and gave hint in other times, his desire was to go to Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome. And why? Because if Paul could get the gospel rooted there and, and, uh, and, and strengthen the church that was there, and if Paul, if Paul could somehow uh, have uh, an impactful ministry in Rome, then what Paul did would make its way throughout those roads and into those places. By the way, that's what Jesus did. Did he not, did he not plant himself? Uh, he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Why? Because, because the major road that led by Capernaum and right around the Sea of Galilee was a road that linked it with major parts of the world. And so he was very strategic and where he planted a church and where he could reach. And so for that reason, Paul longed to go and to preach the gospel and minister and strengthen the believers that were there uh, in Rome. Now, I want you to go with me to chapter 16 real quick because I want to introduce you to a, a young lady who is going to be the vessel by which the Apostle Paul sends this letter to the Roman Christians there. Romans chapter 16, he's writing to the church there in Rome. And he says in verse, 16, in verse 1 of chapter 16, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as become the saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a succour of many and of myself also. So here's what happens. The Apostle Paul, uh, uh, who is in Corinth, by the way, finds out that there is a sister, a beloved, faithful member of the church at, Sin of, of the church at Sincrea, and that she is taking a trip, for whatever reason, to Rome. Okay? She's, she's, she's traveling from that region into Rome. Paul finds that out. And, and in, doing, in knowing that, he decides to write a letter to the Roman Christians there in order to strengthen them and encourage them. And, and he sends it by Phoebe. Phoebe is the courier. Phoebe is the vessel. Can I just stop and say, listen, can I just stop and say that I understand that, that, that the Bible um, places certain requirements and assignments, I like to call them, on men and on women, and on wives and on husbands and on children, okay? There's certain requirements, but, but, but the, the, the idea that God somehow uh, has placed women at a second-rate situation, um, that's really not New Testament. That, if you want to do that, then you have to go back beyond where you place people back in the curse and we don't live under the curse because Christ redeemed us from the curse. And so we're not archaic in our mentality. I'm very grateful that here in the New Testament, here's a lady that's traveling from Sincrea uh, 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 and, and is going to Rome. And she is entrusted with one of the most vital doctrines. We'll talk about that in just a second. One of the most vital documents 
in all the history of the New Testament church was given to her to deliver. Okay? Now, Paul, Paul um, uh, wrote the letter from the Greek city of Corinth in 57 A.D. That was three years, just three years, after the 16-year-old Nero became emperor of Rome and four years before Nero started his persecutions because um, he, he blamed the Jews, made them the scapegoats of the great uh, Rome fire uh, that took place in A.D. 64. He hated the Jews to such a degree, and I cannot go into descriptive language, um, but he hated the Jews so much that he, he would take live Christians and he would run a pole up through their abdomen and would bury it in the ground, dipping them in hot tar and lighting it, and he used the burning bodies of Christians in his gardens to light the vulgar and sensual gatherings of people that knew absolutely no boundaries as far as what would be committed, what acts would be done in those gardens. He was as vile, as demented, as insane as any human being that ever sat on a throne in any place. He was an absolute tyrant. And so that's coming, okay? He's, he's three years on the throne. He's off his rocker anyhow, but he, he doesn't have the liberty. When the fire of Rome took place, then he's able to blame all the Christians and, and, and point their finger at them that this has happened and, and, and totally lost his mind. But during this time period now, okay, so we're, we, there's a little bit of a pocket here. And during this pocket, the Christians at Rome are experiencing, uh, to whatever degree, a time of peace that they will probably never know again. Okay, this is, I mean, it's fiction to end. Four years, four years, four years and they're hiding for their life. And I've been in the catacombs. I've been down in the catacombs of Rome and I've seen the scattered pieces of bone still left on ledges in there where Christians were, were hiding uh, uh, from Nero and his, his, his henchmen. And, and they would go down into the catacombs and they would hide out and, and, and come out in forays and trying to scrounge and gather food. They died in the Colosseum and were fed to lions and the unbelievable things that took place there as the crowds cheered frantically. Uh, uh, at, at, at the bloodbath that took place down there. But right now, right now, there, there's a little bit of a degree um, of, of peace that's going on here in Rome amongst the Christians. Now let's go back for just a second before we get into the meat of what I want to talk about tonight. Let's go back and talk about Phoebe for just a moment. <clears throat> this beautiful... And when I say that, I'm referring to her faith. I don't know what she looked like visibly, but she was a faithful member of a church in Sincrea. And every church during this day was a church out of place as far as the world is concerned. She's fighting a culture much like what we do that is anti-Christ. It's anti-God. It, it does not adhere to what they're doing. Someone said this to Phoebe. 
Listen carefully to this. She carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole feature of Christian theology. That is such a true statement. Because the letter to the Roman church has been called, by the way, the gospel according to Paul. It stands as the absolute clearest and most systematic presentation of Christian doctrine in all of the scriptures. I mean, there, there are others, you find doctrine dealt in, in other places, and you find practical things dealt with in other places, but if you want to find, if you want to find the doctrines of Christianity summarized in one book, in one letter, the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans that Paul wrote from Corinth, is the most distinguished doctrinal statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the Christian faith and its theology that has absolutely ever been written. And so this young, this young Christian girl, hidden beneath her clothing there, she carries with her what we, what we have before us in these 16 chapters of the book of Romans. It's a, it's a powerful book. Now, let me, let me just sum it up for just a second with you. Paul begins the book of Romans by discussing the sinfulness of all humanity, for all have sinned, right, and come short of the glory of God. This is where we get our Romans road, where we're able to sit down with someone. Why, why the Romans road? Because it is, this, is the, this is the doctrinal statement. This is the statement <coughs> excuse me, that lays out for us the Christian faith. And so uh, Paul begins by discussing the sinfulness of all humanity. And he tells us that every person is condemned due to our sinfulness <coughs> and our rebellion against God. That's, that's why. And, and then on top of that, so here, what, what's he established? Everybody watch me. What's he established first of all? He has established that all men are sinners. What's the second thing that he does? He comes along on top of that and he makes the statement that, that however, even though we're sinners, that God in his mercy and grace offers us justification by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we receive redemption or salvation because Christ's blood has covered, washed away, removed, paid for our sin debt. Okay, you got a debt, you're a sinner. But God in His mercy paid that debt for you and, and by His redemption through the blood of His Son, we get, we get salvation, we get forgiveness, we get freedom. That's the essence. That's the basis of our Christian faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, It's by God's grace. That's the only way that we're saved. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy hath He saved us. So we get that in the book of Romans, okay? Now, the next thing that I, I want you to understand that Paul does, so he establishes we're sinners in the early chapters, okay? Chapter 3, 10, 23, chapter 5, 12, chapter 6, verse 23. So he's establishing some things, okay? Then he, then he teaches us that God's paid for our sin debt. 
So whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall what? Shall be saved. Isn't that a great, wonderful thing? Now watch me. Listen to me. But he doesn't leave us there because what he's, what he's doing, what he's doing is he's telling us that, sal our, listen to me, our, our relationship with God, our relationship with God does not stop with salvation. Thank you, Chad. Our salvation, our, our relationship with God, listen carefully, our, our relationship with God doesn't stop at salvation. Okay? So when you read in the book of Romans, bam, we're sinners. We rebelled against God. Okay? The wages of sin is death. Uh-oh. We got trouble. Wait a minute. But to get to God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What? He'll forgive us. Yeah. Okay. But then he teaches us this. Once you're saved, God has a deeper relationship with you than just you being birthed as a Christian. God now wants to sanctify you. So we find out about justification, then we find out about sanctification. What is sanctification? That means you're holy. God now, in your relationship with Him, God wants to make you holy. Okay, what does holy mean? Well, it means you grow your hair out like Rapunzel, and then you stack it on top of your head where you have to bend over to get in doorways. That's not what it's talking about. What does it mean? It means you wear clothes from the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution and, and you know, you, you wear as archaic a clothing as possible. That ain't holiness. You know that all over America, there are people that have got one singular, narrow idea about what holiness is. Let me tell you something about holiness. Holiness begins on the inside. Now, it works its way out. It impacts the way we look, dress, act, talk, walk, use chalk. Just rhymed. Uh, all, all, all of those things. It impacts, it impacts all of those things. Now watch me. It works its way out, but it begins inside. Listen to me. You can look holy on the outside and be wretched on the inside. That's exactly what he said when he talked to the Pharisees. And he said, on the outside you look really great. Inside you stink. So if we're not holy on the inside, it don't matter what we do and don't do, what we wear and don't wear, where we go and where we don't go. It, it doesn't matter. Nothing of that matters at all. Because holiness is a heart condition that expresses itself outwardly. Okay, so, so there's not one litmus test to holiness. It's a part of our relationship. It's a part of our relationship with God. And so he's teaching us this. Watch me. He's teaching us that God, when He saves me, doesn't just save me from the penalty of sin. He wants to save me from the power of sin. Now, isn't that great? How do you get saved from the power of sin? Well, it's a progressive thing. I'm being more saved. Now, I was once saved from the penalty of sin. Okay? I was one time saved from the penalty of sin. But I am being saved. I can show you scripture on that if you like. I, I'm being saved from the power of sin in my life. What does that mean? I'm becoming, hopefully, more godly, more holy, more sanctified, more set apart for God. That's a process that God begins once we're saved. And listen to me, that process will continue until you stand before Jesus and, and, and we, shall be, we behold Him, okay, uh, just as He is. So that's, that's a continued process, okay? Now, I want to give you some points that I want to express to you from this book that are practical points from the book of Romans that I think will be a help to us. First of all, First of all, point number one, and there are three, there are three points I'm going to give you. 
but they're extremely long, each one of them, so don't relax, please. All right, here we go. Point number one. What we believe, what we believe should determine how we live. Okay, what we believe should determine how we live. Now, Romans begins with 11 chapters of doctrine. Okay? First 11 chapters, bam, one right after the other. Doctrine. I'm, I'm talking, look at me. I'm talking doctrine. I mean, bedrock, core value doctrine of the Christian faith. If you want to know what you are supposed to believe as a Christian, go to the book of Romans. First 11 chapters, there, listen to me, there's no wiggle room. There's no negotiable ground. This is the Christian faith. Boy, wouldn't it be good if we got back to that. That there is there now, uh, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. You know what half of Christianity does today? They spend their time condemning people that God's forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Rodine, I think I condemn you. I think you ought to be condemned. Okay, fine. Let me show you my condemnation. It's called Calvary, Golgotha, the cross. The whole, the whole reprehensible, from the human standpoint, act that took place on that skull-shaped hill, that's God's judgment on me. This is, this, look, look I, I, I'm not facing that again. He, he didn't face that for me, and then guess what? Dino's got to face that down the road somewhere too. Jesus paid for it, but I got to pay for it also. No, no, no. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So I will never be condemned for my sin because on that cross, he took my condemnation for me. Well, God's going to judge you. No, God judged him. Now, my sin carries with it judge, judgment, consequences. So when I do something, when I do something, and God will chastise me, He chastises me to make, but, but the purpose in judgment is to penalize and punish. The purpose of chastisement is to correct. God's entire purpose in my life was to correct me. He's never tossed me aside. He, he, he's, he's never incarcerated me outside of His grace, you see. So we, 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 we spend so much time in judgment and in, in condemning people. You know why? Because we don't understand the book of Romans and what it says, and we don't understand who our God is. He's not Zeus. He's not Odin, okay? That's not who He is. He's Jehovah, and He's a God of mercy and a God of grace. And, and that's seen throughout the Scripture. Now, so the first 11 chapters begin with doctrine. Then what happens? In the final five chapters, he transitions into uh, five chapters of practical instruction. Now, now watch me for a moment. The union of the first 11 and the final five, the union of doctrine and of um, uh, uh, practical life, what it does is it, it teaches us something that's extraordinarily value, valuable, and it illustrates the absolute importance of two things. So, 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 so first 11 chapters, doctrine. Last five chapters, chapters, 
practical stuff, okay? So you got these two, doctrine, life, doctrine, life, doctrine, life. What does that teach us? Here's what it teaches us. It teaches us the, the importance of both, circle that word, both, what we believe, okay, and also how those beliefs impact the way that we live. So he gives me doctrine to start with, and then he says, let me show you how, and, and it really, throughout his writings from then on, he's writing and saying, this is, see that doctrine? This is what that doctrine does to your life. This is how it impacts you. So he's teaching us that what I believe is supposed to impact the way that I live. Now let me ask you a question. Ready for this? Here's a question. Let me throw it out at you. And, and you can toss it aside or, or lateral it to somebody behind you. That's all right. But here's the question. Does your day-to-day -day life mirror the beliefs that you hold? Does your day-to-day -day life mirror the beliefs that you profess to hold? Or do you find yourself in a perpetual, constant struggle with hypocrisy? Because here's what hypocrisy is. You ready for that? This is what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite is somebody that says, I believe this and yet I do this. This, this is what I believe, but this is how I live. This is what I profess, but this is how I live my life. There's a double standard there. It's a killer. It's a killer in the world because people look at us and say, wait a minute, I thought you said you believe this, but... And, and yet you're able to do that? I, th I didn't think Christians did that. You know why they say that? Because they know more about our faith sometimes than we do. And they have an expectation that if you're a Christian, what you say you believe should impact the way that you live your life. And if not, we're saying that we believe one thing and yet we're living another. And so I think what Paul is saying in the general, it's the bigger picture of Romans. I think what Paul is saying in the bigger picture of Romans is simply this. Uh, yeah, take heed of your doctrine. Take heed of your doctrine, but don't forget to put it into practice in your everyday life. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's jump there and mark this verse down. 1 Timothy chapter number 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 16. Watch what Paul writes to Timothy here. He says, take heed unto what? Wow, three of you. That's more than two. So I'm, I feel like we're improving. Uh, okay, so take heed unto thyself. Okay. And unto the what? Okay. So here's what he's saying. Watch how you live and what you believe. Isn't it interesting that he put thyself in front of doctrine? Is that not, is that not significant? Here's why. Because you can believe whatever you want to believe, and you can pound your chest and toot your horn and get a megaphone and scream from the mountaintops what you believe, but you know what people are going to see first? You, your life and how you live every day, how you, how you act at the grocery store, how you live in the neighborhood, how you carry on relationships with people. And so the reality of the matter is, take heed 
What you need to take heed to, first of all, you. Take heed to you. Because if you ain't right, I don't care what you believe. That's what, that's what Paul's saying to all of us here, me included. And then to the doctrine uh, there and, and continue in those things. And so what you believe should impact every area of your life. It should imp impact you on the job, in your home, in your church, in your relationships. And what we believe should determine how we live our life. Now, I've said before in marriage conferences, I've said it in our church, that, that the, the key to a good marriage is being a good Christian. Okay? That's so simple and yet so not easy. Okay? Let me tell you this about marriage, in a, and I don't want to narrow it just to marriage, I want to narrow it to relationships. Almost every, listen, almost every single time that I deal with people, and it, it, a lot of times it's, it's, it's a job, it's job related, or it could be family with cousins or brothers or sisters. I've seen people that didn't speak for literally, I'm not exaggerating, decades and all of those type things. And sometimes it's husband and wife, and sometimes it's child and parent, and parent and child. Sometimes the dad's dead and the, and the, and the son is alive and he's 60 two years old and he's crying because he can't have any communication with his dad, and yet his dad left him feeling like there's a horrible blemish in their relationship and he's sobbing as a grown man. Can I tell you this? Listen to me carefully. The key to a good relationship, regardless of who it is or where it is or how it fits or whether it's child, parent, friend, cousin, brother, sister, is being a good Christian. That's so simple, it's unbelievable. But it dead sure is not easy. That's why we struggle our whole life. Do you know what you've struggled with your whole life? Being a good Christian. <laughs> okay, you didn't like that. No, you know, what I, you, know what, you know what I've struggled with? I wish I had a mirror. I'd hold it up right here and look at myself. There's my struggle. I can see myself right now as a 16-year-old kid. It's the Jacksonville Coliseum. Jack Van Eppe is preaching. He gives an invitation, and I'm on my face. I've just, I've just come out of a drug school that is, if it was called a hellhole because that's exactly what went on there. And now all of a sudden, I'm in this incredible gathering of humanity and a man of God's preaching the Word of God and I'm on my, fa I'm on my face before God crying and begging God as a 16-year-old uh, teenage boy to help me become a good Christian. I've struggled with that my whole life. Do you know what I struggle with right now? Okay. Been in the ministry since I was 17. You know what I struggle with right now? Being a good Christian. The re reason for that is because we're sinners. And being a good Christian is a really simple thing. I, I just need to be a good Christian. Yeah, but your flesh is wretched. That's why Paul, wait a minute, I'm talking the iconic Apostle Paul said that... <laughs> That, that I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Because the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I wind up doing those things. 
There's a war going on inside of me, Paul said. You know what he's saying? I'm trying to be a good Christian, but I struggle. I'm trying to be a good Christian, but I, I'm having a battle with that, you see. And so the reality of the matter is um, that, that's, what, that's what we're all to do. We, we're, we're, look, look, look. If, if, if you're going to be a good Christian, one of the hardest things you'll ever learn to do is forgive and quit bringing past up and quit dragging people through and letting people go. That's why people, that's why people, can't, that's why people can't find peace and a home sometimes, even in a church family. It's because of their past. They've had a divorce. They messed up their marriage. They've been in jail. They've been on drugs. They've been a drunk. Do you think church, do you think church is for people that have all their ducks in a row? They sure ain't. It's for people that have been forgiven and and want to do something with their life for God. And we've let people in before and just, yeah, come on. We'll try to help you. And I got burned. I've been burned. So people, what you going to do, preacher? Well, I'll tell you one thing I'm not going to do. I'm not going, I am, I'm not going to become cynical. I'm not going to become jaded. And the next guy that comes along that really wants help may really want help. And if I push him away because the guy before him burned me, then I'm going to miss helping somebody that really genuinely needs help. Throughout my ministry, we've helped people before that didn't really want help. They just walked around with their hand out. They're just looking for somebody to... They won't, they won't help themselves. They won't get out of their own mess. They're just looking for somebody else to get them out of their mess. That's okay. We can figure them out. It won't take long to figure out that's what they're doing. They don't want to help themselves. I, that's okay. People are like that. I'm not going to let that burn me. And I, I, I refuse to become jaded to where, to where I won't help anybody because some people take advantage of that. It's not the way we should do it. Let me, let me, give you, let me, let me show you something. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, everybody there? Ephesians chapter 4. Let me show you some scripture that will help you. Let me show you some scripture real quick that will help you. Watch this. Wow, this is going to be hard. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your seatbelt, please put it on. Okay? And tighten it. When we fly on a plane, my wife does put her seatbelt on when I threaten to tell the uh, stewardess. She doesn't have it on, but she puts it on loose enough that if we hit turbulence, her head's going to hit the ceiling anyhow. So you all pray for her, if you will. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no, uh, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of what? Edifying. Are the things you're saying, are they edifying? Do they build people up? That it may minister what? What? Grace unto the hearers. Here's what God said. The way you talk ought to edify people, build people up, and give and show grace to them. Watch this. And if you don't do that, what happens? And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now watch, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye, next word. Oh, wow, that's not fun. i got to be kind to people, really? Well, he wasn't kind to me. That's not what God said. 
Well, they weren't kind to me. It doesn't matter. And be ye kind one to another. Watch this. Tenderhearted. Oh, boy. Next word. Forgiving one another. Okay, well, how am I to do that? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's the toughest living right there that you'll find in the entire New Testament in that we have to forgive people like God forgave us. You want to find out how God forgave you? He forgave you when you didn't deserve it. You had no right for it. God forgave you anyhow. So, so, so when I read that, this is what I have to ask myself. I have to ask myself, does that sound like the guy in the mirror that I shaved before I came to church tonight? And, and, and let me just listen to me. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? <laughs> Be careful how you answer that question. Am I a forgiver? Do my words edify? Do I speak with grace? Okay. Be careful how you answer that with the Holy Spirit inside of you. That comes from maturity. It, come, it comes from absolute maturity. We have to forgive as God's... For, listen, listen to me. You have to forgive as completely as God forgave you, forgave you. Wait a minute. And you have to forgive as thoroughly. You have to forgive as completely and as thoroughly as God forgave you. Do you not think that after 48 years of marriage that Susie doesn't have reasons why she could not forgive me? Sure she does but she has to forgive me as God forgave her. Now, I may have less reasons not to forgive, but over the years of living with somebody for 48 years, you, you, can, you can really, you can, you, can, you can build up a pretty bad mm, list. What about with your brother or your sister? Your best friend or your ex-best friend? If you're going to have relationships with people, you're going to have struggles with forgiveness because people are going to need to be forgiven because you need to be forgiven and God's the forgiver and we've got to forgive like God forgave us. That's just, that's just scripture. Okay. And here's what we can't do. Look at me. Look at me. You cannot put your faith on like a coat and come to church and then when you leave, take it off and set it aside and go home. Now here's what Paul was teaching us. The first 11 and the last five. Here's what Paul is teaching us. The way that I live, not what I say, not the scriptures that I quote, not my doctrinal statement that I hand you. The way that I live will tell you what I really believe. That that ought to bring us to a place of super reflective self-examination. Number two. Ready for this? Number two. Point number two. Practical point number two. We should pay our debts. Oh, boy. Get ready for this. This is awesome. My dream has always been to be a Dave Ramsey man. Larry Burgett was before Dave Ramsey, and Dave Ramsey came along and powerful, great stuff. I love, I love, I loved Larry's stuff. I love Dave's stuff. 
I was riding back from a I was riding back from a marriage conference that I'd spoken of down in near Daytona, Florida, and I got my radio on, and this guy comes on. I'm like, what? And so I pull out a yellow legal pad back in those days, all right? That's my iPad. I pull out a yellow legal pad and I sit it down beside me. I'm driving with one hand. I'm not even I'm not even hardly looking down. I'm just writing down thoughts that he's saying and jotting them down. And I thought, this is unbelievable. This is great stuff. He's teaching you how to find financial freedom. The average credit card debt in America is $7,951. This is an interesting fact that men hold a slightly, and I'm talking about dollars slightly, I'm not a hundred, I'm talking about slight, men hold a slightly larger debt than women do. Okay. That's because our four-wheelers cost more than their shoes, okay? Watch this. Do you know what state, do you know what state has the largest credit card debt? Alaska. Isn't that, isn't that surprising? I got this right after y'all came back, so I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I don't know what you spent there. It's amazing. Yeah, Alaska. I thought, are you kidding me? What is there to spend money on in Alaska? You know, a harpoon? I don't know. But anyhow, so, so uh, yeah, Alaska. The average mortgage debt is 241815 That came from two years ago. The average mortgage payment is $1,427. That was also a year ago. The average home equity loan is $41,045. The average auto loan, new, new auto loan debt is, uh, excuse me, the average auto loan debt is $23,479. And the average new, listen to this, the average new car payment is $729. Now, I'm just going to tell you right now. Ain't no way. The house I grew up in cost $61 a month. I ain't paying $729 for any car of any kind. If you want to buy me one, I'll try it out. I'm not paying that kind of money. I mean, it's insane what, what people spend on. It's just, just uh, the average used car payment. This is insanity to me. The average used car payment is $528. Ain't no way. Okay. The average personal loan debt is eleven thousand eight hundred and fifty. So so when you get to when you when you start adding all that up, what does it mean? It means we're in a mess. We we got a lot of debt that we owe. And so people are devising plans um, to achieve financial freedom. Now I said all that to just go around the block one time and say this, and that is that there is a debt that we owe spiritually that is so oftentimes neglected. Look with me, chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I am what? What? Debtor. Paul said, hey, hey guys, I owe a debt. Well, who do I owe a debt to? Both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now, what is a Greek? That's the educated group. That's the cultural group. What's the barbarian? Anybody that ain't a Greek. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, then, then, then it, I mean, do the wise and the unwise. So here's what Paul said. I don't care who you are. 
Paul, Paul's saying there's no distinction. Paul's saying, I owe every single person, regardless of their educational uh, uh, um, level, regardless of what, what, what they are culturally, regardless of whether they're respected or not, wise or unwise. Don't, Paul said, don't, 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 give me, don't give me all that stuff. I don't care. My outlook is that I owe every single person that I come in contact with, whether they're accepted or not accepted, I owe every human being an opportunity to hear what I heard. And as much as in me is, I'm ready to come to Rome and do that. Why? Verse 16, because I'm not, what, ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to every, you ought to circle those two words, everyone. Yeah, to the Jew first, that's how Jesus came, but also to the Greek. Because therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because this is what we're doing on Sunday mornings. This is, this, is, this is the emphasis of what we're doing on Sunday mornings during the month of January. And you say, well, preacher, I don't like that. Well, it don't matter to me in the least because this is how God's led us. And the reality of the matter is you're probably not doing any more than the rest of us are. And so God's trying to challenge all of us to be a better witness, a more vocal witness. I'm talking about, listen to me, to be a more bold witness. God, have mercy on us. Are you kidding me? We're ashamed to talk of our Savior? We're hesitant and reticent to tell somebody the great news that we have on our two signs out there, that Jesus saves if I'm bold enough to put that on our banners out in front of our church, I ought to be bold enough to tell everybody that. And I get rejected. Now people say, I don't want that. Okay, that's fine. It's your choice, but I'm going to tell you. I got to, I'm, I'm going to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. I put some stuff on Facebook, uh, Marketplace, a few things. And, um, and I get scammers. And, and here's, here's what the scammers say to you. You've, you've probably all had this. Here's what the scammer says. I'm interested in that. Can I call you? Okay. So I give them my phone number. And guess what they've got now? They've got my phone number. Okay. They're not giving me their phone number. They want my phone number. So this is what I say to them every time. I've got it where I copy and paste it out of, out of a little notepad there. Here's what I say. Absolutely. one 888 888-8888. That's my phone number. Then I give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say this to them, Jesus died on the cross for our sins because he loves us. Yep, that means a scammer just like you. And then I go through the gospel story and I tell them how that Jesus died for them and that they're going to die one day and that they're going to face eternity one day. And when that happens, they'll either be in heaven or in hell. And it's solely based upon whether they've accepted Christ as their Savior or not. And I ship it out to them. I don't get any reply at all from any of them. A couple of years ago, one guy wrote me back, emailed me back, and he said, yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't really care about me. Oh man, thank you for that. So we continued our conversation for a couple of hours, just back and forth. And I was able to pour my heart out to him and tell him how much God had, had given for him. And the greatest price that has ever been paid for anybody in the history of the universe was paid for him on Calvary. So it gave me an opportunity. I, look, 
this object, look, just, just look for the opportunity. It's there. I'm not going to spend any more time on this. But you owe a debt. Somebody gave you truth. Somebody gave you truth. You owe a debt to share that truth with everybody you can uh, and have a difference in their life. Number three, and last of all, here's my last point. We should all be godly tributaries in somebody's life. We should all be godly tributaries in someone's life. One of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible is Romans chapter number 16. I want you to jump over there real quick, and, and, and we, 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 won't, we won't have a lot of time to spend here. But in Romans chapter 16, I just, I, I love this chapter. He starts out and he talks about Phoebe. And, um, and, and he says, please receive her in the Lord. Then verse 3, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks and to whom... Uh, not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, and likewise greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinatus, uh, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who were also in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane. Our helper in Christ, and stake us, my beloved, salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristopolis' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that are of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Asyncritus, Fledglon, Hermas, Petro, uh, uh, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which were with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Well, what was that he just did? Well, those are the people he went to Chick-fil-A with. And so he kept a list of them. No, that's not what this is about. He's not saying these are all my buddies. You know what he's saying? This is what he's saying. I'm giving you a list of people that you know nothing about, but I know a lot about. Do you know why? Because they were tributaries in my life. They helped me, they helped me go from being Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. They flowed into me and changed who I am. Mississippi... River drainage basin drains more than 1,245,000 square miles. That's all or parts of 31 states and two Canadian provinces. 41% of the land mass of the continental United States is drained through the Mississippi River Basin. 41%. It's a life-giving artery that flows for 2,552 miles through the heart of America. If you threw a bottle in at Lake Itasca in Minnesota and, and, and let it float unencumbered to the Gulf of Mexico with nothing touching it, it would take three months to get there. No wonder it's called Father River, Old Man River. At its widest part, it's 11 miles wide. At its deepest part, it's over 200 feet deep. And yet, I've, been, I've stood at the, at the headwaters at Lake Itasca as it just, if it just gurgles over 
a string of rocks that are about maybe 40 yards wide and maybe a foot and a half deep. And that's the beginning of the waters of the great Mississippi River. At that point at Lake Itasca, its flow rate is six cubic feet per second. When it empties into the Gulf, it's 700,000 cubic feet per second. What is it that, what is it that, that changes that little stream in Minnesota to the mightiest river on the North American continent when it dumps its strength into the Gulf of Mexico? It's tributaries. 26 rivers. 26 rivers flow into the Mississippi and 7,000 streams. And so when all these rivers, the, 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 you know, just the different, the Red River and, and, and the Minnesota and the Croix, and all, all the, as all these rivers flow into it, they add their strength to it, and then these 7,000 little itty-bitty nooks and crownies and streams flow into it, all of a sudden, all of a sudden that's 40 yards wide and a foot and a half deep, it becomes the mighty river, Old Man River itself. So Paul gives us a lengthy list of names and each name represents an individual that came into his life, a tributary that took a blind convert named Saul and helped him become the iconic apostle Paul. There's a lot of tributaries, my friend, between Saul and between Paul. And I want to just tell you this. You can't make it on your own either. You, you're not where you are because of you. You're where you are because somebody invested in you. I've asked you to pray for Brenda Turner. You know why? Because a 17-year-old kid never drank, never smoked, never took drugs in his life, but I had no direction in my life. And I walked into a youth department, and Ray and Brenda Turner met me and loved me. And at the deepest, darkest moments of my life, sometimes in the dark hours of the morning, when I was wrestling and struggling with what God wanted me to do for my life, I called them and they, they, they brought me to their house and sat me in their living room. When everyone else was sleeping, they poured their heart out to me. And that hospital bed in Atlanta, that's a tributary. You don't know her, but she gave me life. She brought me from that 17-year-old kid to where I am today. And I'm just saying, just as sure, just as sure as you need, you needed a tributary in your life. You know what? Somebody else needs you to be their tributary. So I don't want to be a taker where I'm just looking for everybody. Help me, help me, help me, help me. No, no. If, if people help me, you know what that means? That means I'm going to help them also. I've told you the story of the last meal I had with my pastor. We ate out together. I opened the door, helped him get in his car. Said, I love you, preacher. I'll see you later. He led my daddy to Christ. His preaching, under his preaching, it changed the course of my history, my family. His influence changed us. His preaching altered, altered our life. 
And as I walked toward my car, I began to think about it. And I turned around and walked back over to his car. And he rolled the window down as if to say, what, what, what you need? And I, I just choked. Tears streamed down my face. I looked. There was a preacher. I don't, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know how to tell you thank you for your investment in my life. And I'll never forget what he said to me because it impacted me. He said to me, Dean, you already have. This is all he was saying. I was a tributary in your life. The greatest way you'll ever say thanks to me is by being a tributary in somebody else's life. Listen to me. We are debtors. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Reach someone else like somebody reached you and help them on their way. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the book of Romans. What a book. Staggering words. Just a book that teaches us and reminds us of everything that is the bedrock core of what we believe as Christians. Jesus, please, please, I pray for myself because I know my own need. Help me be a good Christian. In my relationship with others, in my home with Susie, as a pastor in this church, as a friend to my, the people you've gifted me with in my life, help me to be a good Christian. Even with people that have wronged me and hurt me and betrayed me and whatever else that I could sit down and cloak myself in my self-pity. God have mercy on me and help me to be a good Christian and to learn to forgive them even as God for Christ's sake forgave me. Lord, I'll thank you for what you do. And I pray you'll bless us and give us a great day this Sunday. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.